Coming up on episode 12 of the Keto Camp podcast, we have a world leader in cancer research, author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, Dr. Nasha Winters. towards taking care of everybody else and if I'm telling someone and I'm seeing their reaction just like that doctor my very first experience I stopped taking care of myself to take care of him that's what happens when folks start to tell their loved ones of what is going on you're then dealing with their reactions you're dealing with their stuff that comes up um, with this and you don't get the opportunity to work on your own I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode with Dr. Nasha Winters. The story she shares, it's going to just pull at your heart. Heartbreaking, devastating, and it's going to hit home because a lot of people are dealing with cancer. One out of three Americans are diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, and it's getting worse. These stats are just growing. So if you have ever been affected by cancer, if you have a friend or a family member who has been affected by cancer, this is going to be the episode you want to listen to because not only does she dig deep into why this disease is happening, she gives you some amazing tools, blood markers to order. You know, we talk about the myth of skin cancer and sunscreen and vitamin D and the BRCA gene, which is the gene that Angelina Jolie had, which she said, you know, she decided to chop off her breast. We talk, we get into that. We get into so much information. We talk about keto for cancer, fasting for cancer, autophagy, mTOR. I mean, this is the go-to episode for all things cancer, keto, and fasting. So without further ado, I just want to let you hear this amazing, brilliant person who has as much of an amazing attitude as she has knowledge in this space. Here's Dr. Nasha Winters. Nasha Winters is a naturopathic doctor. She is a thriver, a cancer thriver to a thought leader. She's been on a personal journey with cancer for the last 27 years. Her quest to save her own life has transformed into a mission to support others on a similar journey. Dr. Nasha travels the world to explore integrative cancer clinics, vet cancer protocols for research projects. She speaks at conferences, She meets with colleagues to help them apply metabolic approaches with their patients. She's been featured on the Bulletproof podcast, on Cancer Health, Heads Up Health, Believe Big. She speaks all over the world. She is an author of an amazing book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, Integrating Deep Nutrition, the Ketogenic Diet, and Non-Toxic Bio-Individualized Therapies. Without further ado, here is the amazing Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha Winters, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. 
It's such a joy to finally be here. You and I have had quite a journey to make this happen today. So thank you so much. We have. And you just shared with uh, the obstacles you had to go through to get here. So audience know that she did whatever it took to be here with us. And I'm grateful for that because I'm a big fan of your work. And I have been for years. And I want to get into your work and what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing in the next few months and years. But before we get to that, I want you to share a story about a young girl who got very sick. And I'll let you take it from there. Well, I think most of us who get into the healthcare field for some reason has a story that compels them to do so. And this is a story about um, a young woman who had a high pile, like just a massive pile of health issues coming into this world. She was uh, sort of born into an environment after uh, a miscarriage of, of her mother. So she was sort of that, you know, the terror that her mother likely held in her body through that pregnancy following, a pregnancy that went full term prior to her. So that's a pretty terrifying thing for any parent to go through, but also uh, the subsequent pregnancies from that can create a lot of trauma in, in utero and a lot of stress hormones in utero. So having some reference of that, that's big. And then this young woman, when she was born, she had unbelievable food allergies. Uh, her mother was unable to breastfeed and also at that time there was nobody really breastfeeding at that phase of time in the world <laughs> so it was sort of out of favor so she was put on a multitude of different uh, formulations that just backfired left and right and caused a lot of GI distress and a lot of colic and what ended up putting her on was on a, a soy formula and you know that seemed like a great alternative back then except for fast forward at the age of nine this young woman began menstruating and that you know, it's not as uncommon today to see that, but back then it was very uncommon and nobody really knew what to think of that information, but basically the trauma of a nine-year-old in third grade being taught how to use, you know, these giant pads with belts on them and how to deal with that, that was another traumatic sort of stepping stone in her life. Fast forward to the age of 11, she started having extreme, extreme painful menstrual cramps and was diagnosed with endometriosis. Fast forward to age 14, she was diagnosed with her first bout of cervical dysplasia, precancer of the cervix. Uh, two years beyond that, uh, cancer of the cervix full blown at that time. And they just sort of kept freeze drying and burning things off just to, to get at it. So you can imagine that those were pretty traumatic events as well. Mixed into that window, this young woman was dealing with ongoing severe constipation. And we're, I'm not kidding you when I tell you that this, this woman's bowel patterns were once a month bowel movement, whether she needed it or not, <laughs> for months on end. And the doctors simply told the family that, well, that's her pattern, so that's normal. Um, she also was dealing with major cystic acne all over her face, her chest, her back, her shoulders major, major, major. And they tried to put her on tons of things like tetracycline and, um, you know, all those drugs at that time. And every pharmaceutical she kept trying to take for her GI issues, for her menstrual cramps backfired. She had terrible drug reactions to everything. Um, her body would abscess off when she would get her vaccines. So it was just this, just the body had been coming into this world already pretty broken. At the age of 19, she started having unbelievable symptoms of extreme pain, extreme bloating, would end up in the ER with, with such severe pain that they would just throw her on massive amounts of pain meds and send her back home, or they'd kind of do a rudimentary physical exam and say she was histrionic or say that it was just her endometriosis, which was officially diagnosed, or that it was polycystic ovarian syndrome. When they did a pelvic, they saw big cysts on her ovaries, um, a really massive grapefruit size one on her right ovary, but they ignored it and wrote it off as polycystic ovarian syndrome. 
fast forward almost a year of that process when this young woman was getting more increasingly weak, um, breathing was becoming more challenging, shortness of breath, even to take a few steps. Going upstairs, she had to like hold and pull herself up. The pain in her abdomen, her abdomen kept swelling. And everyone, every time she'd end up in the ER about every month, um, they just put her on more things like antibiotics. She was having unbelievable UTIs, unbelievable yeast infections. I mean, it was a nightmare. And it was when this young woman expressed that it was a time in her life when she really didn't want to live because of just some of the traumas she'd experienced in her youth, um, a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of addictive issues in the family household, a lot of poverty, and just a lot of disparity in her household. So there wasn't like a lot of motivation to live. And then the pain and the overwhelm in her physical body was intolerable. And it was at that point when she finally ended up in the hospital in almost cardiac failure, um, on oxygen, like in tachycardia, weird things going on, that a doctor who was visiting the hospital at that time happened to do a more thorough exam. And he actually ordered up, um, at that time, an MRI and was able to find out that this young woman was in end-stage organ failure of stage four ovarian cancer that had metastasized to her liver, to her pelvis, all throughout her abdominal tract, and she was in end-stage kidney, liver, and heart failure. So this man had to come in and tell this 19-year-old woman, you have cancer, there's nothing we can do, you're too sick to even take on the, uh, even a single dose of chemotherapy. And basically, when that man told that young woman that there's absolutely nothing that you can do, despite her previous feeling of not wanting to be on this planet, it sort of ignited the pilot light inside of her and sort of had one of those moments where it was, you tell me it can't be done, I'm going to show you that it can. And fast forward to 27 and uh, nine months, 27 years and nine months into this process, I sit before you today as the woman who uh, lived that story. Wow. I, I, got, I, I knew that story and I still have goosebumps because first of all, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for, for what you're doing to get that message out. How is it that you went from ER to ER, doctor to doctor, and it took that long for them to discover you had cancer? How, how did that even happen? Well, I think number one, I was in a very small town in Colorado, so we didn't have a very sophisticated medical system. Number two, I was uninsured. So I think truly that there was a disparity between the haves and the have-nots in our, in our society. So when someone's uninsured and sort of the young, starving college student, I don't think you're taken quite as seriously as someone with coming from a bit more affluence, just to be very frank, at least that was my personal experience. I was also, because I have a strong constitution and the way I look most of the time, you know, I think that they, no one could actually see how sick I was because I was able to compensate a lot in just my personality to just sort of do what had to be done. I would force myself. I was in pre-med. I was taking 28 credit hours, dual major in chemistry and biology, working three jobs. And so I think everyone just assumed that I was, you know, the rock of Gibraltar. And yet I was just, you know, the extreme pain I was carrying and, and the sort of the secret within my body I was carrying. I wasn't good at showing my pain or my vulnerability. It was actually part of my story as well. And I wasn't good at asking for help. And so I carried that by myself very uh, well, very well until I couldn't. And by the time I couldn't, it, the, it, my body just it exploded. So the other side is being 19 years old. That's considered what we call in medicine a zebra diagnosis. So it's something really rare. You were not seeing in 1991 
ovarian cancer in 19-year-old women. At that time, that was a disease of women in their 60s, postmenopausal women in their 60s. Just to give you an example today, in the last six months, I have seen five girls under the age of 10 with stage four ovarian cancer. That definitely asks the question of what the actual because something is going on. And that's what I've spent the last 27 years learning about for myself as to the why it happened for me, but also the why it's happened for the tens of thousands of patients I've been able to support um, over the past quarter century. Wow. I want to get into what the bleep is going on there. Uh, before we do, let's go back to that moment that that doctor, thankfully, ran those extensive tests. And thankfully, you're stubborn <laughs> because it, you wanted to prove them wrong. But before you had that moment of, oh, yeah, let's see, I'll show you. Was there a moment of how did you feel when you first heard those words? Do you remember like what you what was going through your head initially? Yeah, I mean, I can remember sitting there in the ridiculous, you know, kind of hospital gown, just having another he, uh, exam. I mean, I got, I, I tell you, I mean, this is maybe TMI, but I basically got a, pel a pelvic exam every month for that last year, and everyone still missed it. Even though they could definitely feel masses, um, they all just kept writing it off as polycystic ovarian syndrome, kept putting me on higher doses of birth control pills, which just fueled mm. the, you know, fanned the fire. But basically, I remember sitting there in that, you know, you should feel pretty vulnerable sitting in a hospital gown on the edge of the exam table, the doctor coming in, his face is blanched. Okay. And here's what happened for me. He came in and before he could even open his mouth, his chin started quivering and tears started coming down his face. And my nature is I basically left my own body to support him to be there for him because he was clearly traumatized of the news he was getting ready to deliver to me because he also told me that he had a 19 year old daughter. And so he was coming at me like a father having to have this kind of conversation with a daughter, which was also very foreign, just given my own father history of not really having one to have this man show this extreme compassion and kindness. And it was this place where I felt this, uh, this unbelievable sense of sort of intimacy with him and supporting him, which kind of helped deflect me from looking at what was going on for myself. That was the initial experience. Then he said, I'm gonna send you to an oncologist to get another opinion and see where, if, this, if there is anything we can do. And so it wasn't really that day. That day, I kind of felt this softness of sort of resolve. Like there was a little bit of relief of even knowing because I felt like I'd been, was told I was crazy for the past year. So there was a little bit of relief then. So when I went in the very next day to the oncology experience, we'll call it that, basically, I'm going to be very frank. I mean, I know this is going to be out there, but I was basically told you're uninsured. You are in end organ, um, end organ failure and that you won't be able to afford these treatments even if you try and they'll kill you right out. And it was sort of delivered with about the warmth of a wet sponge. And I think again, I understand now of being on the other side is to look at a woman who's 19 years old, who'd been trying desperately for a year to figure out what was going on to basically sit there and have to somehow take some ownership or accountability in this process. They weren't able to do that. And they weren't able to be compassionate and be at the bedside. So they basically never looked at me the entire time they said that, which then infuriated me as being not seen as a very painful thing for people to experience. And it was in that moment, they're like, there's nothing you can do, but basically go home and die. That was the essence of the conversation. I left that appointment enraged, which was the good thing because in Chinese medicine, anger is the will to become. 
Okay. And so it was, again, it was like the, the little furnace the day before got lit saying, Hey, I, I think I want to live. And then the next day it was like, let's crank up the heat. Right. Took me right to the library in my little town. And I don't know what it, what made, because I was pre-med. I was from Wichita, Kansas. I was not into alternative integrated medicine at that time. I was, I worked at a health food store. No, I didn't yet. I started working at the health food store after this. I'm like, God, where are all my times? So I was still working at, as a detox counselor, working grave shifts. That should tell you something too. But basically I went to the library and the first book that popped off the shelf to me, I somehow found myself in the integrated medicine section was at that time a very thought-provoking, a very new concept book called Quantum Healing by this crazy cat named Deepak Chopra. <laughs> you know, and this is sort of the beginning of his legacy as well. I sat down on the floor right on that same aisle and read that book in two hours. And it's basically the concept of a paradigm shift and how we can really embody that to change our outcomes. That book became like a roadmap for me that led me to millions of other books like it. It's like every time I read another book, I'd find four more references, four more recommendations, and I gobbled it up, I inhaled it. I'd always been a voracious learner. And it was also at that time in college, I worked in a library that was part of my work study to get my scholarship money. And because it was an outdated library, we were a poor liberal arts school, we didn't have all the brand new science books. So in my kind of oncology, science, biochemistry section, I stumbled upon a book that referenced the work in the 1920s of Dr. Otto Warburg, because I couldn't find anything but Gerson out there. And I was trying that. I was doing everything. Did you just, what, what's Gerson for somebody who doesn't know? So the Gerson therapy was popularized in the 1940s by um, Dr. Gerson, who had amazing experiences of resolving oncology situations of all kinds, all tissue types, by basically putting people on a very, very vegetable dense, vegetable juicing, high potassium, low sodium chloride diet with coffee enemas and things to help the body excrete the tumor lysis and excrete the inflammation of the body. And he had very interesting successes in his time and has even written a few books about it. But one of the things that sort of got lost in the translation of the modernization of this therapy today that's still used, especially in clinics in Mexico and parts of the, of the U.S., was he had people eat raw liver several times a week. He did not have them juice loads of carrots and apples. It was not a, a, a high sugar juicing. It was all the green. He wanted people having pounds of greens juiced a day to get um, all of those particular you know, biochemical you know, building blocks to help cleanse the tissues and support the body. And it was basically a very low carbohydrate diet. And so he was having people do that and along with coffee enemas to clean out the building. Well, today they do a lot more fruit juicing, a lot more carrot and apple juicing, which are very high in sugar. They don't do as many of the, of the coffee enemas and they definitely don't do the liver anymore. Didn't Steve Jobs do a similar approach? He did. And he had pancreatic cancer, which is, we call, I kind of consider that sort of like diabetes on crack. And he had a neuroendocrine form, a very slow growing form, typically, that people have pr pretty good prognosis if they just simply do a surgical resection. And he sort of didn't go that route. And I think in his brilliance, he also uh, was sort of connected from his physical body. He was very good at interacting with the world on a different level. And he had, if you've ever read his story, he had very particular ways about him 
a little OCD tendencies. And so, you know, he always wore the same outfits, things like that, but he also got under the kick of doing basically mono fasts of just carrot juice or monofast or just apple juice. So it seemed like he was attempting a modified uh, Gerson diet and people kind of blamed alternative medicine for killing him. But he took what was normally a very good prognosis, slow growing neuroendocrine tumor and basically threw gasoline on an open fire mm. and, and unfortunately died from something that he likely never needed to die from. Now we'll never know right? And his family might come after me on this, but I know the patterns. I've looked at so many tissue types and cancer types, but there are certain personalities of cancers and molecular marker types and personality types of the person wrapped around the cancer that says that we can test, assess, and address their biochemical individuality to know precisely what is the best way to treat him. And from just the basic information I have about his case, I think that he was not properly supported in this. And so that's something that luckily, knock on wood, I've had multiple patients with his exact same diagnosis who have done very, very well. It's a very different approach. And so I would hope that folks realize there's not a one-size-fits-all, that it is very individualized, and that we can test and really know how to support somebody through this process. And that sort of backtracks to my own journey is I have made a lot of personal mistakes along the way for myself, including kind of doing the modified, modernized Gerson in the beginning. I actually made things a lot worse. It became even more cachectic, more muscle wasting. I became even more, because I was also doing a ton of grains, which I didn't know until many years later that I had celiac and rheumatoid arthritis and all kinds of other autoimmune things that were not responding well to that. I didn't know anything about SNPs then. Nobody did. Uh, I wasn't starting to do my labs really until 1996 when I entered into medical school. Five years later is when I could really start doing more deep dives into functional laboratory assessment because the only thing I had access to before was CBCs and CMPs, metabolic panels and blood chemistry, and that was it. But it was something that I could start to watch, and my CA-125, which was a marker. So I could watch this process, and I wasn't moving the needle on the dial of my cancer tumor marker coming down really at all, but I was starting to move the needle on the rest of the inflammation and the symptoms in my body. I was incorporating a lot of, like the coffee enemas really helped with the ascites. Um, I started doing a lot of acupuncture for my GI issues, started doing a lot of, I worked in a community with Native American healers where I worked at the detox. I started working with a shaman. I started you know, really working on my trauma, my post-traumatic stress disorder, started doing EMDR, which is a really powerful trauma resolution therapy. And the biggest thing I did during that time was a two year family fast. So, you know, hopefully this is helping your listeners. I know we're kind of diving into some weird stuff here, but I recognize for me the, the source of my illness very much came from a lot of trauma, not just mine, but what was, you know, poured on me from previous generations as well. And then being a latchkey kid in the 70s and 80s, where my mom worked three jobs to keep a roof, a you know, single mom keeping a roof over our head we literally lived on like Fruit Loops and peanut butter sandwiches, you know? And so it was a just malnourished environment. And then because I was so driven in other ways, it was really clear for me that like I pushed myself constantly. So in school, I was always straight A's. I was, you know, student body president. I was on my volleyball team, like all those different things. That was, again, my outside world was I could keep it together. And I could do really well. But carrying that with the inside of me being so sick and broken, that's the place that discourse, that disconnect, that lack of integration is where my illness grew. Because we can all be out there and be like, I'm having a really, like me telling you, oh my God, man, this week has been insane. 
but I, it's not of me. It's not contained in me. It's just more like I'm watching it like a movie, observing it now. Whereas before I internalized all of it. Mm. And so these are just the examples of things I've learned for myself and patients over many, many years with thousands and thousands and thousands of laboratory assessments and stories that I've gotten to collect from people to watch patterns and trends sort of manifest that brings us here today having this conversation. So what I'm hearing is that sharing is very powerful. Sharing authentically is very powerful for healing the body is what I heard from you right now. You're nailing it. And you know, people like even Bernie Siegel in the 1980s was able to show studies that women with breast cancer in support groups had a much better prognosis and a longer survival rate. We've shown that in other multiple studies since then. Um, and really that sort of spurred the whole movement of the, the field, which I became, which I got my minor in. After my diagnosis, I switched from psych, uh, biology chemistry major to a biology uh, psychology major and basically reconstructed my own major of psychoneuroimmunology. So the concept of psychology meets your nervous system and neurotransmitters meets your immune system. And at that time, again, these were all new concepts, but people like Candace Pert and Bruce Lipton and Deepak Chopra were starting to present these ideas into the Western thinking. Since then, we've had gajillions of clinical trials and studies and readership about these processes. And there's a great book called Childhood Disrupted that your listeners might want to check out all about childhood trauma influencing chronic illness and cancer in the future. Um, there's an ACE score, Adverse Childhood Events Score, which is a 10 questionnaire. When people, however many yeses you have to that, and this is a, a, a survey asking you about experiences you have before the age of 18. For every yes you have, your likelihood of having a chronic illness or cancer in your adulthood goes up 10%. So if you have four, you've got a 40% higher risk of, say, cancer compared to someone who has a zero. So just to give your listeners that experience, it was no wonder. I mean, I had 10 out of 10, right, of those experiences. So duh, like that's, that's the natural evolution. That's the beauty and power of the body that thinks it's still fighting the saber-toothed tiger well beyond the years when I've been working on changing that. So it's an ongoing process that folks who were exposed to more trauma at the younger ages or extreme trauma later on in life, it, it resets their entire system. And you have to work very diligently to turn the dial down on those hyper-reactive, vigilant um, signaling systems. Where, where can they go and take that quiz, the ACE, the ACE uh, score quiz? Perfect. If they simply Google ACE score or ACE questionnaire, adverse childhood events, you'll pop up a million links. They're all over the place. And this is even in those psychology textbooks. You know, it's part of the um, people doing like psychological scoring and testing use this often. And I actually use this in every client that I work with. It's just to get a sense of, did some of this stuff start then? Or was it something like I had a young man yesterday with a glioblastoma who was trapped for two hours on a subway in downtown New York at 9-11? So, you know, like things like that, he had no adverse childhood events, but that was a giant kablam to his system and his psyche. And what he then witnessed in the days to come that was just like living in a war zone, it, it set him in a mode that just sort of, un, you know, just put him into a, like a weird hamster wheel for the last several years. That, that's so interesting. I'm inspired to use that ACE score with my clients. It's, it's so powerful what you just shared. And, you know, it's just something that is under-recognized, from even including myself. I want to go back 
again, because your story is so fascinating. I have so many questions to ask you, like the nuts and bolts of things, but your story is just... When you first got diagnosed with cancer, who was the first person you told? That's interesting. It took me about two weeks before I was even willing and able to tell anyone. So I told no one in that first bit. This sounds really weird, and I don't I don't want this to like go onto a weird tangent, but it felt like a really sort of dirty secret for me. It felt I was I was very ashamed of the diagnosis, you know, in the beginning. There was like so much stuff in that that was just crazy. I've unpacked it so many times, it's just ridiculous. But but ultimately that was my first sense. And the person I came out to was my now husband. And it makes me emotional just to think about this because what 22-year-old man (laughs) at the beginning prime of his life, who was probably like, what the heck is wrong with this girl? She's always sick. She's always sick. She's always sick. You know, I, I was really struggling in the first part of our early kind of dating courtship time and very private about a lot of things in my life and my past. And when I told him, the way he responded to it was, I mean, that's probably the moment I realized I love that this is my guy right? This is really new in our relationship, really new in our relationship. But basically he's like, what can I do to support you? It it wasn't like, oh, it was, it was just this like, I'm right here with you. Right there, that healing balm of that would help probably anybody in a situation of any distress, whatever the diagnosis is. You know, I think that's a really powerful piece of information for folks to hear. It's like, meet it. Don't run from it. Don't deflect from it. Don't, oh, don't Pollyanna it. Don't code it. Don't God has a bigger plan for it. Don't do that to somebody who's in that state. Lean in, not away. He leaned in. And then I was very explicit of like, I don't want anybody to know this. Not a single soul. No one. It was incredibly private for me. And why he could handle it is because when he was 16, his eldest brother, he's a baby of 10, his eldest brother was diagnosed with inoperable stage four pancreatic cancer. And his brother was given three months to live. And he always says the story. My brother was given three months to live. He gave them the finger and he went down to Mexico. And fast forward, Bob lived another 24 years with inoperable pancreatic cancer. And he figured out, he just kept weaving in all these different things. He tried Gerson for a while. That didn't work. He went to more of a metabolic approach that stabilized things. He was awesome for 24 years. That tumor was still on the head of his pancreas. They'd actually done a duodectomy to kind of bypass it, sewed him back up. We're like, ugh, we can't do anything. So his biggest issues was dealing with small bowel, a short bowel syndrome, so just digestive stuff. But it wasn't until 24 years later when he told Steve and I at Christmas of 2003, hey guys, you're the only people I'm telling but it's on the move again. And I'm not going to do anything about it again because I was given 24 bonus years. I got my soil soil science work in the Smithsonian. I watched my three boys be raised. I met and married the love of my life. And I've had way 24 bonus years in this process. And I know that nobody else can handle it. If I tell them this, he was dead three months later. You know, he died in um, March of 2014. And it was just amazing to watch because I understood where he was coming from. And he knew that he and I had a lot of bonding in our time of what we'd experienced together. And so Steve had already been with someone who chose an out of the box approach. So it was easy. But if I'd been dating somebody or if a family member had been involved, I will tell you the hardest thing when you're dealing with a diagnosis like this is the well-meaning advice and wishes of the people in your circle. 
So for me, my own personal experience was to keep it very sacred, very personal, until I was ready to share with whatever I was. And frankly, I wasn't really even ready to share about this until about 2012, 2013, that many years later. I kept, and people knew later on that I had a cancer history, but I very much downplayed it. I didn't want to be a cancer patient. I never have seen myself as that. You see it as a journey. You see it as part of the of the process. But having Steve holding that sacred um, information with and for me for so long and started over time letting in a few more people, but really I could probably count on one hand of the people who knew of the dire nature of the situation I was in. In fact, I sold everything I owned then. This is ironic because I was just telling Ben before this, my husband and I are in this stage right now of like letting go of everything and starting fresh. That's what I did then. I sold everything I had, which wasn't much. I was a college kid, right? And took off backpacking for seven years. It was my bucket list or for seven for seven months. It was on my bucket list. I didn't think I'd survive it. And I thought, what the hell? I'm going to go see the world. Well, in that time is when I experienced meeting other healers and options of, of well-being. You know, I, I had this epiphany. It's like when I thought I was dying, I actually said, well, I'm going to definitely live. And that was another shift for me. And so these are the types of things, you know, we don't talk about with our patients or our people we're coaching very often is sort of the psychological warfare with whatever disease process we're dealing with. You could keto till the cows come home. You could take every perfect supplement. You could be in perfect metabolic flexibility. You could have an incredibly immaculate, clean environment of what you put in on and around your body. But if you are not dealing with the emotional upheaval within your cells, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to get the outcomes you hope to. So I'm actually relieved that we started here because you'll notice in my book, it's like the last chapter, but it really should be the first chapter of where mm. people start the journey. But people have to come to it when they're ready. I, I agree. Uh, you said it best. You could be doing keto, fasting, <clears throat> CrossFit, working out, even good sleep. But if you don't have, you know, authentically sharing with people, love and gratitude, loving yourself, I, I always say you, you cannot heal a body that you hate. So if you hate your body, it will never heal. And all these things lined up for you, Nisha. You had that doctor who showed up and from out of town and said, I'm going to run some more tests. You went to the library and the first book was Deepak Chopra. You happened to be dating a guy who actually cared about you and, and gave you that support. Like everything lined, the universe conspired to, to just guide you. And it still does. It totally does. I mean, it's, it's every step of this journey feels like it has been divinely planned. And as woo-woo and esoteric as that is, you know, I'm a scientist uh, first. I'm really into the data and the geeky side of it. But I also, the sort of spiritual, larger than me, the unknown, the mystery aspect is not lost on me. I, I fully embrace that part of myself and my world as well. What were the, the top tools that you used on yourself to heal your body? Well, you know, it was a pretty easy jump to go from a standard American diet, um, but I was—I I do have to back up. At 16, I decided to become a vegetarian because I was really a, an advocate, like a animal rights advocate. I was like in this feisty place. I've always been feisty, so that pays off well. But I did that. But I was living in Wichita, Kansas, where a, ve a vegetarian diet was basically Velveeta cheese, elastic pickles, and iceberg lettuce. And I—I I, I kid you not, that was my main three food groups. Okay, so things like that was crazy. Or like Doritos. Doritos are vegetarian. Like I was in that mindset. It was basically extreme junk food, extreme carbohydrate-rich vegetarian diet. There was no nourishment. So when I learned more, and my boyfriend at that time, who thought I eat, ate atrociously anyway, I'd live on my super cheap ramen and my super cheap boxes of mac and cheese, he started sneaking in like bits of 
uh, bell pepper and um, broccoli into my ramen and I was just like <sighs> I hated that like I was like what is this my idea of a vegetable was canned cream corn okay that's how far I've come <laughs> you know and and these you know these crazy things so he helped me in this and we were both vegetarian together he was a triathlete we were both you know like eating our bean burritos with tons of rice it took us years. It took me until the end of my medical school career when I was looking at my labs to realize I am full bore diabetic. So is my husband. We are sugar junkies. We are carbohydrate addicted. If we skip a day without sugar, we both feel terrible. Were you eating frequently as well? Oh, like every two to three hours constantly. And with my husband's training schedule, he was pretty much always, I felt like he needed to have just like a pump of food into his mouth all the time. So on a fun side note, he was creating major damage, flaring psoriasis, unbelievable short recoveries from his, um, you know, I mean, he was Olympic bound. I mean, the dude was a hardcore athlete. And by the time he was 30, he was basically crippled. Um, and couldn't use, he couldn't straighten his knee, he had all these little tumors in his knee. I mean, it was just like we were both so inflamed and so oxidized and so malnourished and depressed. And my husband was dealing with that time, boyfriend at the time was dealing with bipolar patterns and I was having all kinds of rheumatoid arthritis, things come up. We couldn't figure out that the cleaner we got, because then we started going vegan. Like, well, that's the trick. It's, it's all that dairy that's getting us, you know? It's those eggs that are causing the problem. Then we went soy crazy, mm -hmm. and then I destroyed my thyroid. And then suddenly I'm 196 pounds out of nowhere, working out, you know, five, you know, hour and a half, five days a week, putting in 100 miles on our tandem every week, you know, weeks. I mean, like I am not a couch potato person, and I am just like becoming the, you know, the the jolly good giant there. And and it was bizarre. And then my husband was like wasting away. He was going sarcopenic and I was going, it was exactly like Jack Sprat could eat no fat is why I could eat no lean pattern in our lives. So we learned together on this journey of our dogma was starting to kill us. Our labs were trying to tell us otherwise that, you know what, you got to look at a different way. And thanks to a Chinese medical practitioner who looked at my tongue and felt my pulses, he's like, you have to eat some animal food. You have to. Your adrenals will not come back on track without some animal protein. My B12 status was like uh, 95 it should be up around 600. Um, I had no vitamin D. My vitamin D was seven. My ferritin, which is an iron storage, was two. I, it was like I wasn't even oxygenating my tissues. My inflammatory markers were off the charts. My CA125, which is my cancer marker, was still in the thousands. Okay. I'd stabilized the quick fall of my ascites that stopped coming after they drained me a few times. I had stopped the sort of progression of the disease by kind of cleaning things up because I ate so poorly that even a slight adjustment into adding in a few vegetables, the body responded. That's what I want your folks to listen to is that any little change improves upon what was broken before. Just like our conversation right before we were talking about fasting mimicking diets versus like a true water fast, well, if you're coming out of really bad places and you step into like a prolonged diet, that might not be the best for somebody like you and I have been at this for a while, but man almighty, is it a massive improvement upon where that person was before. And so I learned this patience of meeting people, meeting myself where I was and building upon that and adjusting accordingly. So test, assess, address. And as I started doing my labs, literally every few months while I was in medical school, and beyond. Now I do them once or twice a year, definitely annually, but more if I'm feeling off. And uh, these are the things that I've been able to see what's going on and adjust it.
And that's what I apply to all my patients. And so our outcomes are really pretty extraordinary because we're not guessing. And we're not just saying, hey, this is a protocol. I saw my friend did this treatment and did great. Well, your friend and this person aren't the same. So let's understand why, you know, why that worked for them. And let's understand what will work for you. Because I think what happens in the world of cancer, people freak out, they go online. At the time when I was diagnosed, there was no Dr. Google, there was only a Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> you know, I had to depend on myself and a lot of old outdated literature and information, which was very, very, very limited at that time. And I feel actually between the family fast and that was probably, you asked what my big strategy was, I think it was that. Because it made me depend on me, 100%. And I was very private. And when people download my first five steps to being diagnosed, I actually really encourage people to not tell everybody in the beginning. My experience is the more people involved in my own nature, I lean more towards taking care of everybody else. And if I'm telling someone and I'm seeing their reaction, just like that doctor, my very first experience, I stop taking care of myself to take care of him. That's what happens when folks start to tell their loved ones of what is going on. You're then dealing with their reactions. You're dealing with their stuff that comes up um, with this. And you don't get the opportunity to work on your own. Yeah, that's great advice. And that guide is on, on your website, drnashawinters.com. If you want to take it, it's a free guide. You had mentioned fasting as being a powerful tool to healing yourself. And I love fasting. I'm all about fasting. You're actually on a four-day water fast right now. It's funny, when I interviewed Dr. Pampa a few weeks ago, he was on day three of a dry fast. So I have all these- Not yet. That's my, yeah. next, my next Mount Everest. Right, exactly. I haven't done it yet either. You know, I live in Miami, so even a, a real dry fast is not even a real dry fast for me. I'm sucking in all that humidity in the body. So interesting the body is. So what's the issue with eating every two to three hours in relation to uh, cells becoming duplicated and cancer growth and, and mTOR, this process called mTOR? 100%. Well, first of all, one thing I, I can't believe I didn't mention this is because of the ascites I had at that time of my diagnosis, my abdomen was so huge, it was bigger than a nine-month pregnant belly. Um, and so what that meant is that fluid was pushing against my diaphragm and up against my stomach and all my organs, which meant no hunger and meant no room for food. So probably the most profound thing is that I was sort of forced into weeks on end of water fasting and only sips of water. So I was probably on the edge of a dry fast. Um, and uh, ginger tea, so I was very, very nauseous with this. So those were the things I was putting in. So that fasting process was probably what staved off, like stopped the massive rapid progression of things and let my body assimilate all that buildup fluid that they, because they can't get everything when they do a pull of the fluid. So they were, over time, just to give you an example, eight and a half liters of fluid was pulled out of my abdomen. So, and it filled up multiple occasions. So that fasting, I think, helped my body deal with that fluid buildup and clear it out of the building. So fast forward to your question of how is fasting or uh, you know, particular timed eating, how does it compare to sort of what I was even taught in medical school is have your patients eat every three to four hours. Don't let them get hungry. You want their adrenals to feel very smooth. I mean, I applied that mismatched <laughs> recommendation, you know, genetically mismatched information to my patients for the first few years of my practice. And yeah, people will feel just fine, but you're basically in a constant wash of dopamine triggers and serotonin triggers. And they're in this place of just like 
feeding their, their psyche, you know? And what happens when we eat that often is we don't give ourselves the bowel rest we need so that everything can get up, clear out and evacuate. So I tell people, you need to have a good two to three bowel movements a day. Be like a dog. Every time you eat, you have to poop. You want to clean things out before you put something in. That's kind of our goal, right? doesn't happen for everybody, but that's, you know, goals. <laughs> and then you want to give that window of autophagy, the, the take out the garbage. What we are finding in the literature is somewhere between 12 and 72 hours, depending on the person, depending on the situation, depending what their diet and lifestyle was like prior to this, that's what it will take of you taking a break from food from 12 to 72 hours to get into some autophagy. And when you're metabolically flexible and you're running like a, like a Prius hybrid engine, if you simply fast 13 hours a day and you're eating clean and relatively low carb the rest of the time, not even hardcore keto, from say 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. fasting, you will shift into some low moderate autophagy when you're in a flexible place. Now, if you were like living on McDonald's and you try that strategy, not so much, okay? But once you become more tuned up, you will start to see that even that can do a nice job for you. And so when we have things in the cancer world, because a lot of people love to stimulate IGF-1 and mTOR and like the bodybuilding world, and a lot of people who are drawn to keto are very much in the fitness and rebuilding of muscle mass. But when you're dealing with cancer, you don't want those mechanisms to be turned on, okay? Because they go... They, Screw your muscles, they go right to the tumor. That's where they go. So you want to moderate or even lower your protein in that time to uh, try and avoid clicking on the mTOR pathways. You want to uh, kick up your fats to sort of, and, and lower your carbohydrates, restrict them as much as possible to sort of stave off the insulin growth factor aspect. And you want to even bring in some intermittent fasting if, you're, if you are eating up say a 65 to 90% of your diet is fat, you still want to take a break from all of it on occasion for optimal outcomes. And so kind of my rule of thumb for someone getting started, even with a, a cancer process is 13 hours every day, 16 to 18 hours twice a week, three days a month of fasting. And you, if you have to baby step into it and use things like Prolon or bone broth to do that, you're not in true autophagy, but you're kind of, it's like the training wheels to get mm -hmm. you there. And then work towards just water, maybe herbal tea, uh, maybe extra sea salt and magnesium on those days, and you'll be fine. You know, and I think that that's a strategy that all cultures have had since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And yet in our world, if you even have a little bit of discomfort or a little bit of hunger or a little bit of longing for anything, that's somehow not good. It's somehow negative. And yet if you sort of hold off on instant gratification on those little hunger signals actually okay i'm actually hungry i'm actually like pissed off at my partner and i just want to eat a donut to make me feel better i mean those are the things you start to question so i always tell patients if you feel that hunger drink more water if after 15 minutes you're still hungry maybe have a teaspoon of um, mct or coconut oil after 15 minutes if you're still hungry maybe have a little bit of protein like an ounce of something protein that, that works for you. And if you're still hungry after that, then for the love of God, eat a piece of, you know, fruit or whatever to hit the carbohydrates and then know that that hunger is likely more psychological than physical. That's a great tip. I, I, I love that. And hunger is a hormone and all hormones are pulsatile, meaning they're going to spike up. You're going to feel ghrelin. I call ghrelin the gremlin. It comes out, it makes noise. And you just keep yourself busy, ride that wave. And all of a sudden, 
the hormone is back down. Uh, all hormones are pulsatile. So you're, you're right. It's more psychological behavior, a learned hunger than anything else. Gosh, I have so many questions here. No, I'm sorry. And, you know, we can always come back and do more in the future. Uh, uh, hopefully my herding cats with you of trying to connect will fight this bad. Yeah, we'll definitely do it again. Uh, but uh, let me just ask a couple more here. I have a really close friend of mine. Her name is Carla. Carla Peroni. I want to give her a shout out. And her dad had prostate cancer last year. We did keto and fasting with him and it, the PSA improved, but we ended up opting for the surgery. So now he's in recovery. He's doing well. So she started studying you and studying Otto Warburg and all these people. She wanted to help her, her father. So she says, if somebody's recovering from cancer surgery, prostate or, or any cancer in general, is there a different approach? What's the best option for them to not have a recurrence? What would, you, what would be a general rule of thumb for them? Well, simply, I would have him start with uh, the 10-part questionnaire that we have in the book. Okay, because it's 10 questions for each 10 drops that add to our bucket that, that gives us our health or our disease process. So I want to understand why he had the prostate cancer first, right? Just because we remove the organ or the tissue or the, you know, the lesion doesn't mean we're cancer-free or doesn't mean that we're going to never have it again. So we have to understand why did it get here? Because we can't completely heal and stay healed in the soil in which we got sick. So I would have your dad take a deeper dive into his terrain. I'd have him take that questionnaire, see what pops up for him. Maybe he lives on a golf course. If that's the case, frankly, he's going to have to move. Okay, mm -hmm. these, are, these are big things. There's no, it's non-negotiable unless he wants to really re, re, you know, set up the house with an internal you know, uh, filtration system and just never go outside. I mean, that's, those are some big things. The other thing with prostate cancer is it's, there's a lot of emotion. Men carry a lot of their emotion in that bowl, their pelvis. And uh, the prostate gland, it's sort of like security and stability in the world. So there's some emotional elements to that. There's also some interesting things of men with like undiagnosed infections that have been affecting the prostate. So I would definitely look into seeing a prostate specialist who can doesn't have his prostate anymore, but would have been nice had they sent it off for pathology to look for infectious agents as well. And then doing some good basic lab assessment on this and maybe even some epigenetic SNPs to take a look at what made him tick, like what foods work in his body, what foods don't. But an interesting rule of thumb specific for prostate cancer only is that there are some studies showing that it can be choline driven. Okay, so one of the things I do for my patients while they're recovering and until we know that we are cancer's way in the rear view mirror is I have them avoid all poultry skin, so like no skin of chicken or turkey, okay, or game hen. Um, I have them avoid all dairy because casein is a big driver for prostate cancer cells and breast cancer cells. Now, if you want some full fat dairy on occasion like butter, ghee, heavy cream, or heavy sour cream, Quality is key, making sure it's super clean because you don't want the extras because those extras are all cancer drivers. And by that, I mean things that are hormone-fed or antibiotic-fed or dioxin-rich in the dairy. So he could do that. But red meat, this is the one cancer that tends to show some literature that red meat might be a problem for this, mm. especially if he has the ACSL1 SNP. That might mean that red meat in his body acts like a candy bar. And his body's like, oh, look, a big Milky Way when it's, you know, a lovely piece of sirloin. So until things are settled, interesting for this cancer type, most often it really thrives on a very vegetable, kind of vegetarian, pescatarian rich diet. So that's how I would approach it is more like, you know, of that of that arena. Um, but again, specifically, you know, they probably just monitoring with a PSA. I'd monitor him with both a free and total PSA. And I monitored his PAP, P-A-P. It's a prostate antigen protein. And it's way more sensitive and way more specific for monitoring prostate cancer than 
um, a PSA. So that becomes his way. And then I would also have him or have his oncologist or his primary care order him a biosept prostate profile and circulating tumor cell count, CTC enumeration. So there's a company called Biocept, B-I-O-C-E-P-T, com out of San Diego, who is uh, FDA approved, insurance covered, validated tissue assay. assay. It's like a blood biopsy, way more sensitive and specific than a scan or a PSA. And it can do, show us, does he still have any little tumor cells circulating? If he has anything above zero, then he needs to repeat that test every three months and watch it diligently. Hmm. That might be that he has to adjust his course and move. We're at a time that these types of things weren't available five years ago, 10 years ago, we're at a time now we do not have to guess. We don't have to wait for the other shoe to drop. So this is a perfect example. I love that we got to use Carlo as an example to show people how I might assess this. So let's explore the terrain. Let's do some other more focused, provocative testing that's specific to that person. And then let's look at their lives. Are they hyper-driven? A lot of my prostate cancer men are. And so that might be a place of, okay, what, what needs to slow down in your world? What type of roses do you need to be sniffing right now? That's beautiful. Great advice. She's going to just love that. Thank you. One of the members of my Keto Camp Inner Circle, I have an inner circle, uh, awesome friend of mine, Danielle, she wants to know, when people are talking about a certain protocol, like, like keto and fasting and how it heals cancer, she's specifically inter- interested in how that relates to something like skin cancer. What claims out there are actually legit versus the ones that are kind of like, you know, a little bit far of a reach? Well, first of all, all of us could benefit from a lower carbohydrate diet and a higher plant intake diet. That's our common denominator across the board of, of sort of the camps that are fighting each other out there. It's like, let's look at the common denominators. What do we have in common? We have low sugar, we have high vegetables. Pretty simple, right? So remember, I think I mentioned this at, the, at Dr. Pompa's conference, was before 1850, we were all low carb. of our calories came from carbohydrates, and we were very physically active to even accumulate those, right? So that's a big difference today where we're about 70% of our diet carbohydrate. So, you know, when people are like, oh, this crazy fad of keto or low carb, I'm like, "Mm -mm." no, this isn't a fad. This is a returning back to wisdom. Yes. The real fad, by the way, is the standard American diet. That's the, that's the most recent diet. <laughs> it's such a bad experiment, too. It's like, who should have thrown that one out a while ago. But in 1850, we started milling um, and processing sugar and flour and salt, not quality salt, and really started throwing that into everything in the world today. And that really changed course of how our metabolic flexibility was working. And even people in the late 1800s, like Dr. Pottinger and Dr. Price, Weston A. Price, started saying, oh God, guys, we're in for it. I and mean, they were seeing it 20, 30 years into the industrial food revolution. And they were telling us exactly what we're seeing today. They're like, we're gonna make ourselves extinct. This is a problem. So that being said, you know, when we talk about all cancer types and we start to get into the tissues, the base camp is everybody should be low carb. Everybody should be higher vegetable intake. Okay. And then where it varies is dependent on maybe the tissue type and the person's personality. Like if you've got a GBM, for the love of God, you are going to be on a therapeutic ketone level above three on your blood ketones for the rest of your long, healthy, vital life. If you're dealing with a squamous cell carcinoma on the side of your nose, you might just look at boar being low carbohydrate and maybe fasting on occasion to kind of clean up the body. 
So an example of some of our superficial cancers, we have actinic keratosis, which is a precancerous condition. We have, and I'm like, I tell people, if you've got a precancerous condition, it's heading there unless you stop it. So it's not like, oh, look, a precancer and go on with your day. Like it doesn't work that way. It's like, or pre-diabetic, that one, that one gets my goat. And so it's like, no, 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 that's, yeah, you're, you have it. It's not a gun. It's, it's just like you're heading there on a fast moving bullet train. <laughs> Get off that track. So the squamous cell carcinomas anywhere in the body, even if they're just a superficial skin or a lung or a cervix or a rectal um, squamous cell carcinoma, they are intimately related to a viral issue. So I treat these, I support the patient's terrain with these types of cancers, no matter what the location is, as if they have a virus. And I use a lot of good antivirals. I make sure their vitamin D levels are optimized. And what do you want to avoid? If you have a virus, if you've got the flu, are you loading up on candy canes and sweet so sodas? No, you're typically getting sugar out of your life. So sugar drives the viral process as well. So that's a big one. If you have a basal cell carcinoma, which are those ones that kind of have like these pearly, you know, look to them, very rarely do they metastasize and cause problems, but those are always blood sugar and low vitamin D and they proliferate. You cut one and like three more come back. So it's like each time you cut one, it's, it, it makes me think of sort of the mycelium analogy that um, we've got this web wrapped around and you damage one part of it and it sends off signals to the rest. It says, make more. That's what happens with the basal cells. So that shows me it's a terrain issue. Now, melanoma gets categorized as a skin cancer. And, and I'm here to tell you, it isn't. No, it is not. It is a systemic cancer. I put it more in the camp with things like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma. It makes more sense in that categorically, but it also makes more sense in that because it's a very immunogenic cancer type. There's a lot of epigenetic components to this. There's a lot of vitamin D receptor site issues with this. There's a lot of emotional components with this. And it does have some nuances. We want to really look at their molecular marker to know how best to treat this because um, in this particular cancer, this is actually one of the few cancers that the Gerson diet does a pretty good job with, okay? And so it still should be low carbohydrate, but maybe they need to definitely be more vegetarian-centric. Mm. The real Gerst Gerson diet, not, not the one we were talking about that a lot of people are doing, the butchered version. Exactly. And so looking at that, that's where maybe your, your friend who's asking kind of just the basic skin stuff. I also want people, like we just had our, our blog come out, I think today or Sunday it's going to be out which talks about vitamin D and sort of the mythology around sun exposure and what we're putting on our skin, which is, you know, the largest organ of absorption and elimination. And the fact that it takes three days to synthesize vitamin D through your skin, but immediately we hop in the shower and we put on all these detergents and all these soaps that saponify and basically take, strip away our good oils, which are what are required to synthesize that vitamin D. So I tell people only soap on pits and parts, folks just on pits and parts. And everything else, just water and scrub, just that's it, because you do not want to damage that absorption. And so those are some tricks where people who burn easily and get these skin cancers, it's because they're oxidized on the inside. They're, they're rusted on the inside, whether it's too much sugar, maybe it's over-exercising, right? Maybe it's that they're under tons and tons of stress, which oxidizes them. So my husband, who was like Mr. Lobster Irish redhead, would look at the sun and turn into like just a scary lobster guy, at 50 years old, he can go out now, surf all day, hike all day, not burn at all. When we changed our diet from being vegetarian and high carb, high sugar to low carb, paleo for a period and then move deeper into keto, neither of us, we haven't worn sunscreen in 20 years. But that's this amazing thing is both of our skin looks better now than it did 
in our 20s and 30s. That's so good. I, I tell my girlfriend all the time, just uh, like you said, pits and parts. And she's, she's like, and I, sometimes I don't, I don't even want to shower. I go, I'm like, ah, I'm just going to go, you know, I'm going to skip it today. Let, let my oils do its thing. Right. We were, we were lucky if we got a good bath every two weeks. Yeah. Lard based soap. And we were based, you know, like that was just the way we are overly clean in our society, which strips a lot of our immune response. Yeah. I see it all the time. And I, I'm trying to get back to our roots here. Where do skin tags fall into the equation here? Skin tags are bl- our blood sugar. That's all it is. So skin tags, and even Western doctors know this. We examine, when we examine the patient, we look especially on the neck, the back of the neck, the ch- like upper chest. If you see skin tags, you are looking at diabetes. It's already, it's already there, 100%. Now, and I'm not kidding. Just Google skin tags and diabetes, and you'll see bajillions. Like, that's what we were taught in medical school. All medical doctors taught in medical school. Interesting. So it's there and it has this is what's cool is this people's blood sugar starts to get better those little buggers start to fall off yeah i've seen it with fasting too they just fall on off there you go what about those um i forget what they're called but they're like um little white they're like filled with pus and they're around the they're around the the neck here that start to build up i forget the name of it it's like basically brought like trans fats in the lymphatics. So when we also will get them under our eyes, like these little sort of like yellow or white kind of pustules that kind of show up there, that's all sort of like bad fats accumulated. Okay. That's so interesting. Blood sugar, bad fats, you get, you take care of that. And then the symptom, which is what you're dealing with, goes away. So we're not treating the symptom. We're treating, we're looking at the root cause. Like you said, in, in a previous podcast, I was listening to you. You don't treat tumors. You don't treat cancer. You treat the person. You look at the person and you figure out what's going on with their terrain. I love that. Your system is to test, assess, and address. That's the way you do things. What are the specific tests that you run? What are, what are the standard tests that you run? What do you look for? Well, I would really encourage your listeners to, at the very least, to run at least annually a complete metabolic panel. See, it's called a CMP, which will look at your organ function, your electrolyte, um, you know, those basic things right there. I would look at a CBC, which is a complete uh, blood count, and that break, and I would get it with differential. So you can look at white blood cells, red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, platelets, but also the neutrophil percentage, the lymphocyte percentage, and then we look at that ratio called the NLR, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. You want it to be two neutrophils to one lymphocyte or better. So like a two to one to one to one shows us an optimal functioning immune system. If it's too skewed of way high neutrophils to way low lymphocytes, you have a broken immune system and an immune system, frankly, that won't respond to any of the standard of care treatments of chemo radiation, et cetera. It's also a good prognostic for people who don't have yet, yet have cancer to make sure they're keeping their immune system tuned up. And then we look at things like monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. And if all three of those are elevated, then we know there's probably a parasite on board or a co-infection of some sort or some major, major dysbiosis. Um, and super elevated monocytes can show us issues around a chronic virus or an acute virus. And elevated eosinophils can show us an, an allergy. So for these two simple tests, that's like 12, that's probably like $25 for both those tests out of pocket if you did a walk-in lab. So you don't even need a doctor's order to go do these. So go do it just to see where you are. I would also add to that a C-reactive protein. Make sure you get a high sensitivity quantitative. So it doesn't just say below 10 because that just means nothing to us because mm-hmm. our goal is to be below 1 or below 0.1 depending on which lab you run. Some have them up to 0.3, some have them up to 3. You want it well below 1 on both of those or 0.1. 
The other one is an, a sedimentation rate, an ESR. You want that below 10. And um, that's a good marker of how fast do your blood cells fall out of your solution, out of your plasma. The slower they fall out, the thicker, stickier the blood, the more there is like a, a scaffolding matrix in there that makes things, that shows that there's a level of inflammation, it's happening that's really bad, plus it's offering scaffolding for cancer cells to climb around on and move about the building. And then the final one is the LDH, lactose dehydrogenase. Sometimes we'll just say LD on lab orders. Don't confuse that with LDL. It has nothing to do with mm -hmm. the um, And it should be below 175 if it's a lab core test or below 450 if it's a Quest test. This is probably the most important and underutilized lab we have because an LDH, plain and simple, is one of our best markers, prognostic markers for mitochondrial function, for metabolic function. So if it's even elevated, if it's even 176, I'm, I'm like, what's going on here? If it's well above that, that's also prognostic. So having an elevated LDH, having a poor neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, and having elevated platelets, if you see that, you actually need to do a deeper dive. You get in with a, a very, very well-trained functional medical practitioner, because those are actually all prognostic for overall mortality. I don't want to scare them out of your listening. Awareness is the first step, right? Because then you see it and you're like, I can turn this ship around in the harbor before it's a problem. Don't wait to be a house engulfed in flames. And then I would definitely throw in a vitamin D3. Make sure your levels are at least above 50 if you're not dealing with a chronic illness, above 80 if you are. And I also look at things like ferritin because that's one of our rusting mechanisms. Make sure it's between 35 and 75. And a hemoglobin A1C. I want that below five, folks. When they tell you 5.6 is borderline diabetes, BS, you're diabetic, you're there. Yep. You already split into home on that one. Yep. You need a larger moat of protection around your castle. And being low five is where we all functionally need to be, no matter your disease state, no matter this. This is your best prevention. End product glycosylation is what rusts us and kills us. And so that hemoglobin A1C is basically a measure of your rust internally, thanks to sugar intake. The LDH, uh, it's referencing mitochondrial function. So if it's too high, what does it mean it's going on? What, what specifically is going on? And if, what if it's too low? So great, great question. So if I see one that's really high or really low, I will do what we call a reflex test on an LDH isoenzyme, which gives us the five basic enzymes that make up the full LDH. And then we can go, oh, the first two usually have to do something with red blood cells or cardiovascular. The third, fourth, and fifth of those tend to do something with like bone and lung, liver, kidney function. If number four and five are elevated, it's almost always tumor process. And so even if you have like a low LDH, but you know, you like know this person's dealing with cancer, do that isoenzyme because you'll see that often one of the dangerous ones are out of range. If it's elevated, then go and look and see what organ system. Maybe you are not hydrating well enough. Maybe you're breaking down bone too fast. Like I had a case yesterday with a gal who's working out. I mean, she, by her own admission, she had hit a long history of anorexia in her past. Now she has a history of over-exercising. She does two and a half to three hours of cardio every single day. She is so sarcopenic, meaning her muscle mass is like destroyed and she just can't understand why she feels so terrible. She has no iron stores, so she's not, she's totally poorly perfused. Her inflammation is off the charts. Her LDH is off the charts. She's in total muscle wasting from this and she thinks she's doing something good for herself now and she eats keto. This is a keto, this is a keto queen. Okay. And I'm like, there ain't enough keto on the planet. <laughs> You've got to stop your, so 
we're dealing with an addictive pattern. And when I look at her SNPs, she's got MAO, VDR, ANKK1. These are all major dopamine imbalance SNPs. So what that means is each time she gets on that exercise bike or gets on that treadmill, she gets a little bink on the dopamine button. Cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. So she does not feel good if she's not doing that every day. So we're weaning her over the next few months off of her cardio and onto HIIT training and onto outdoor time, hiking in nature. Because she even says when she goes for like a 20 minute hike in nature, she feels much better. Mm. So she's like nature deficit, dopamine excess, you know, dopamine deficient, needing her HIIT. So these are the things we want to look at with our patients. Like what makes them tick? Don't just assume, because you'd look at this woman and never guess in a million years this is what she has going on. And we couldn't have found this out. And she's a healthcare provider. So she was shocked. She was like, you have a lot of information here, you know, of just some simple labs. Those were the labs we ran. We looked at her thyroid profile as well. It was all wonky wonky because she's over-exercising. So her HPA axis is off kilter. Her adrenals are fried to a crisp. And she is now trying to run on adrenaline, but even that is no longer, you know, in endorphins, it's not even working anymore. Wow, that's amazing information. I have my final two questions, and then we're going to wrap up this amazing conversation. Uh, the BRCA gene. Angelina Jolie made this very famous, and, and I heard you say she started like a billion-dollar industry with these genetic SNPs and these companies. If somebody has this gene, well, first of all, what is the BRCA gene, and uh, what would be your approach if somebody came to you and you found out they ha your patient has this gene? What would you do with them? Well, I have this gene, so I know it very well. I was one of the first people tested for it in 1996, because if you had a personal or family history of ovarian cancer or breast cancer, you were some of the initial people being tested for this. So when we saw that I had it, it was like, duh, you know, of course. But what we've learned since then, in fact, there's been a couple interesting papers. We spent from basically 1996 until a couple years ago, freaking everybody out, basically chopping off body parts left and right, and even putting them on preemptive pharmaceuticals that are incredibly toxic and dangerous. That hey, yeah, you might not get cancer, but you're gonna definitely die of a bone break or um, a cardiovascular event. Not a good idea. Preventative tamoxifen in young women who've had um, ovaries and breast removed to prevent breast cancer will kill them from other means much faster than the cancer ever would. So I'm a little bit passionate about this. A BRCA mutation or a BRAC or a BRC, you know, like there's a couple of different ways to say it, but basically a BRCA1 or 2 mutation is simply a problem with how you methylate, how you process things through your liver and through your system. So it's really more about your diet and your lifestyle because a methylation hiccup and a BRCA gene, it's not a gene set in stone, it's more epigenetic. You can turn on and off BRCA expression at will with your diet and lifestyle choices. And so what's also interesting in the last year or two is we've actually had multiple studies saying that prophylactic surgeries for, these, for BRCA have no difference in survival rate for these patients. Because they get, they put, I believe it's because they put all of their eggs in that basket of thinking, I'm doing prevention by cutting things off or taking these drugs preemptively or over screening, which are methods that introduce even more stress and anxiety every time the patient goes to the screening, but also more radiation. And so what I would like to see is a more logical way of supporting these folks. If they do opt to have a prophylactic surgery of any kind, they still need to work with the terrain specialist to help them understand what's going on in the garden of themselves and make sure they're not going to be blindsided. Because if you've been like me and you've had seven patients who did all the prophylactic surgeries and did everything they thought was right per the standard of care because their mother or their cousin or their sister or somebody very close to them died of this horrible disease with all the treatments thrown at it in the world, think about the shock where suddenly they are dying 
of a cancer that they thought they took care of by cutting things off. And I've had seven of those people of those in my practice and two of them did not survive. And that was really painful. It's like, had someone taken the moment to help them understand themselves and taught them to do the questionnaires and dig deeper and look at what makes them tick and not tick and make sure they're on top of their terrain support to avoid that statistic, that's where we need to go. So we're barking up the wrong tree, in my opinion, of the prophylactic surgeries. And if people still opt for that for whatever reason, there has to be a heck of a lot more going on besides just that. But it's something we actually are far more powerful to deal with than not. Um, and so I want people to know that it's simply methylation. There are tons of people out there who know how to work with um, increasing and supporting your methylation pathways. Work with them. Yeah, that's, I, I hope this information gets out to the masses. It's so crucial. Final question, Dr. Nasha. What is your definition of perfect health? That's good. Um, when I think about what perfect health feels like for me, or when I see it come through to me from the person I'm working with, it's when I see them completely connect with the inner rhythm of who they are on mind, on body, on spirit. They're driven by joy. They're driven by gratitude. And they're driven by passion and purpose. That is health, no matter what your physical deficits may be at any given time. Because disease is just an expression of something that's out of balance, out of accordance of the nature of who you are. That's all it is. And when we start to bring those other pieces into balance, the physical things will fall by the wayside, or it's easy to kind of deal with those more superficially while you're working on that internal sort of self-alignment and self-awareness. So to me, it's just those moments when you're kind of in your flow and you're smiling for no apparent reason and you are doing something that you absolutely love and you're surrounding yourself by people who elevate your essence, who make you feel good in the world versus break you down in the world. That's optimal health in my, in my opinion. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that definition. I want to acknowledge you and say, everybody, go and get her book. Go study Dr. Nasha. Her book is amazing, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. It's on Amazon. You can go to her website. All the links for everything we mentioned is down below. I want to acknowledge you, Dr. Nasha, for taking that pain, that amazing, almost devastating story, and turning that into a purpose. And you're helping so many people. I mean, the work that I'm doing has your fingerprints all over it. So just know that. Anybody I help, and I have helped, you have a, a helping hand in that. It's a ripple effect that you'll never understand, but understand that it's there. And I really appreciate you and your attitude. You're going through a lot. You made the call today. Albert Einstein said that uh, intellectuals solve problems and geniuses prevent them. And uh, you're a genius in my eyes, and you teach other people how to become a genius for themselves. So I want to say thank you for your amazing work. I really appreciate you, and I admire you and what you're doing in this world. Lot. Thank you so much, Ben. And thanks for this opportunity to speak with your keto camp. Awesome. Keep up the amazing work. What an amazing episode that was. I'm so glad you listened to the whole episode. I acknowledge you for that. And I want to just take a moment to take in that information Take some time today, take some time the next few days to explore the links, the show notes that we, I, we put together for this episode. We put everything she mentioned there. And like I said, you want to be a genius, not an intellectual. Geniuses, they, they prevent the problems. Intellectuals, they solve them. So even if you don't have cancer, 
you want to be proactive, not reactive. And you could do so by looking at those show notes, exploring the links, getting her book, studying Dr. Nasha, going a little deeper into this subject. I'm going to go a little deeper on the next episode of the Keto Camp podcast. I'll explore keto for cancer a little bit further and fasting for cancer a little bit further. So make sure you listen to that episode when it's out. If you haven't gotten my free Keto Kickstart Guide yet, head over to www.ketokickstartguide.com. It's a free 12-page ebook, and it'll teach your body to burn fat instead of sugar. We just learned that sugar increases your risk of cancer. So we want to make sure we're burning fat, we're producing ketones, and we're getting all the amazing benefits of the keto diet. So get that resource. It's a very easy read. You can read it in 30 minutes or less. And if you're not subscribed to the Keto Camp YouTube channel, make sure you head over to YouTube and type in Keto Camp. Remember, that's camp with the K. And subscribe. There's a lot of videos on autophagy, on fasting, on cancer, and all things keto and fasting on that channel. So subscribe to the channel, hit the bell, and uh, I go live very frequently on that channel as well. If you haven't done so already, please make sure you rate and review this podcast. If this episode that you listen to with Dr. Nasha Winters or any of the episodes have resonated with you and brought value to your life, please, I want to encourage you to take 30 seconds out of your day to rate and review this podcast. It means so much to us as podcast creators, as influencers in this space, because it'll help get the message out there. We do what we do because we want to get the message out there, and you will play a big part of that by just taking some time out of your day right now to just rate and review the podcast. Share it with a friend. Share this episode with somebody going through cancer, and keep educating yourself. I want to acknowledge you for listening to this whole episode through, and stay tuned for the next episode. I'm excited to keep sharing valuable episodes with you every single week. Be great. Be blessed. You are a miracle. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.